For anyone planning on starting a business, creating a podcast, writing a book, or even running a marathon, my next conversation could prove immensely valuable. It's with high-performance psychologist and behavioral scientist, Dr. Dylan Colbert. Dylan works with companies and elite level athletes looking to drive high performance behaviors. We're going to talk about stuff like motivation, self-efficacy, self-control, why some people would quit and why others don't, why others stay in the fight and strategies you can use in your life as you embark upon your quest to help you on that road. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you the second of two conversations with Dr. Dylan Colbert. Dr. Dylan Colbert, thank you so much for joining me. Give me a synopsis of what you're doing right now. So currently what we're doing is, I suppose, it's an application of a lot of the work that I've been previously been doing up to this point in a high-performance sport kind of mm. context. What we're doing is we're taking a lot of the learnings from that particular domain in terms of how to get people where they want to go, how to remove barriers to performance, how to reach their goals, and we're applying, applying that to, I suppose, the domain of physical wellness so we'll be looking at nutrition goals. We'll be looking at exercise goals. We're trying to help help people become healthier by applying this kind of high-performance mentality, trying to figure out what psychologically, motivationally, and emotionally, what they need to get to where they need to go in terms of their health outcomes. So in, in many regards, you're looking at high-performance from the, the athlete in the sports um, in, in an athletic way, and you're trying to map it on to, say, executive coaching or leadership or into the corporate world, et cetera, et cetera. Is that all of that? All so, of yeah, we're, we're looking at simply directly relevant performance outcomes, mm. but then more specifically, we're looking at physical health as a precursor to people being able to push their own limits, challenge themselves to serve as a platform, I suppose, for higher performance going forward. Okay. What are the most essential behavioral characteristics? that are pivotal or central to peak performance? In general terms, well, general. Like, what we tend to find is, and that's one of the things that we're learning, is that there is kind of a generic skill set. There's transferable skills. A goal is a goal, and it doesn't matter whether the goal is to climb Mount Everest, to win an Olympic gold medal, or it's to eat more grains every week. You know, the mm -hmm. magnitude of the goal may differ, but really the type of behaviors and the approach that you need to reach those goals doesn't really change all that much dependent on the domain. Mm. So there's a few things that we'll always have a look at. Um, one of the things that I always focus on is self-efficacy. We spoke about that a little bit in the last um, podcast. We look at things like locus of control, which would refer to your perception of how much influence you have upon the course of events that is your life. And then things like discipline, connecting to motivation and self-control willpower all of these sorts of things are going to factor in to the attempt to reach any goal regardless mm. of what it is you're trying to achieve can you describe um what what are the big five personality traits and i want to ask you about that because i want to find out if two or three of those 
traits score highly in more successful people? So should we be testing and looking for two or three of them? What are they first? And is there evidence that, say, extroversion appears more in, in high performers as opposed to something else? Yeah, so the, the big five are sometimes it's known as the five-factor model. Mm. It is a trait-based perspective on understanding personality. So what the big five attempts to do is to give us some sort of understanding of who you are, what makes you tick, what your behavioral tendencies, what your preferences are, mm. by figuring out where you land on five different characteristics. So it's easy to remember the five characteristics. As I tell my students, they come in the acronym OCEAN. So we have openness to experience, which mm. really refers to how open-minded you are. Are you intellectually curious? Are you adventurous? If you're lower on that, maybe you're a bit more conservative in your thinking. Mm. The next one we have is conscientiousness. Highly conscientious people are disciplined, hardworking, reliable, responsible, organized. Next one, extroversion, as you mentioned. So extroverts tend to be far more interested in social interaction. They can be more outgoing, maybe even a little bit impulsive sometimes. They're sensation seekers, broadly mm. speaking. Next one, agreeableness. So that really refers to how much of a team player you are. People who score high on this are cooperative, they're empathetic, they're kind, they're generous. And then the last one, neuroticism, which would really refer to your level of emotional stability. Some people are quite sensitive emotionally, that they're prone to changeable moods. Other individuals are a little bit more even-tempered, maybe a little bit more hard-headed sometimes. Um, and this gives us a snapshot. It's important to note that this gives us a quick and easy understanding of personality. And um, it does have predictive validity. And by that, we mean it does give you an indication of how people are more likely to behave. And mm. um, but maybe some theorists extend that beyond the evidence base. You know, we will often see somebody who scores high on extroversion might be extroverted in context A, but not context B. Uh, like, for example, I'm introverted, deeply introverted, but my job is basically public speak and I have to act in an extroverted way. So it gives us a, a snapshot. It gives us a bit of a picture and mm. um, it's not perfect, but it gives us a starting point. Um, and if we are kind of looking at profiles that are beneficial for high performance or goal achievement, there are certain trends that you see there. And um, so for one, conscientiousness in a lot of domains tends to be an advantage because if you're looking at trying to reach some sort of lofty goal, it necessitates an awful lot of hard work. It necessitates focused and organized concerted effort. People who are higher on conscientiousness tend to be a little bit better at those sorts of things. And mm -hmm. um, so that tends to be an advantage. And um, in another kind of way we see neuroticism sometimes can be a disadvantage if you're talking about maybe the corporate world and if you're talking about sport we definitely tend to see that really high levels of neuroticism can cause problems and um, because people who score higher on this particular scale tend to be more likely to have changeable mood and the thing i worry about with changeable mood is we might have changeable motivation changeable self-belief all of those things that could undermine performance and um, now Obviously, there's more context-specific profiles, like being highly neurotic can be an advantage if we look at artistic pursuits, because it means that they feel emotions more deeply, maybe they're more in tune with them, more well-versed in expressing them. Um, but generally speaking, if I'm trying to pick out a few different traits that could be barriers or resources, I kind of like to see high conscientiousness, and I'd prefer to see neuroticism a little bit lower on the scale.
different domains then will demand different profiles or different profiles would be advantageous in certain domains and not in others. I'm thinking about it in a leadership context if I was in a corporation, yeah. right? Okay. And I was looking to promote from within or yeah. if I was looking for an executive or at a board level and I was promoting externally and I didn't know anything about the person. You can see evidence um, from people internally of conscientiousness and yeah. of... Um, um, agreeableness and neuroticism eat quite easily in, in their daily and yeah. how they go about their daily lives. But I would love to test to see if I could test that uh, bringing people in candidates in and externally for for leadership or, or management roles worth considering what, what you just said there about conscientiousness in particular. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's chat about motivation. Um, how would you go about identifying the source of an athlete's motivation? And is it actually important to do that? Do we care where an athlete gets their motivation from? Uh, well, to answer the second question, we don't really care most mm -hmm. of the time where they get it from, as long as we can identify where they get it from. So essentially, I, I don't really mind what I have to work with in terms of what's going to fuel somebody, as long as we know what that is and we figure out how to harness it. So typically, I would tend to begin with a psychometric assessment of motivation, a self-report uh, questionnaire that will give me a bit of an insight, and then we probe a little bit further. Um, and there's one model that I really like when it comes to kind of trying to find which camp of motivation somebody resonates with most closely. Um, and it divides motivation up into a few different uh, categories. On either end, we have intrinsic motivation, and then the other end, we have extrinsic motivation, which are probably terms people might be familiar with. And if you're intrinsically motivated to engage in an activity, it means that you have a desire to engage in that activity because of an inherent love, a passion for the craft. You know, it's a passion project. Extrinsic motivation refers to a desire to engage in it based on the receipt of some external reward. So that could be the salesperson who only cares about the bonus. And mm. um, they're not necessarily problematic, but they're quite like wide ranging bins to be putting people in. And a lot of models do put them in one or the other. And mm. um, there's a lot of gray area in between those two camps. And I think that's where it gets really interesting. And um, moving a little bit outside of intrinsic motivation, but still talking about an internally derived motivation. There's a form of motivation called an um, integrated motivation. Um, and I actually see that a lot. Um, I see it a lot in sport, but we're also starting to see it more when we look at people's health goals, that they tend to want to reach these goals because of this integrated motivation. And basically, integrated motivation refers to a desire to engage in an activity, not because you love it itself, not because you get enjoyment out of it, but because it's an important aspect of your personal development towards some sort of higher goal. So like that's the type of thing that we'll see that, okay, somebody wants to be a bit healthier, a bit fitter, so they can play with their kids out in the back garden a little bit longer at the weekend. And I tend to see that an awful lot across domains. And it's always about aligning their day-to-day -day activities in a way that brings them closer to that ultimate goal and finding that kind of connection between this maybe health-based goal and then what's the ultimate goal. And um, there's a few other camps beyond that, but it's very important to try to figure out where somebody lands in order to identify what are the buttons we need to push and how do we portray the goal for them in a way that's going to be most conducive to their to their efforts, to their commitment, their engagement. That's what I always try to do. 
Mike Tyson, Mike Tyson said that discipline is doing what you hate to do, but nonetheless doing it like you love it. What's your yeah. perspective on that quote? I've never heard that quote, but that, that's a brilliant quote because I probably have a similar quote that I often use with my clients. And I'll always say discipline beats motivation. And that, that's where I'm that, going with this. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Because I think that's something that people really need to connect with when they're talking about the slog towards a long-term goal. Sometimes people tend to think, well, if I wake up in the morning and I don't want to go for the run or I don't want to eat healthy or I don't want to go to training, whatever it is, but then there's something wrong with me. What I would always say to people is nobody has infinite, you know, omnipresent motivation. It doesn't work that way. What separates the really high performers, the people who reach the goal and those who don't, is that the ones that reach the goal have the capability of doing the thing even when they don't want to do the thing. And again, that's something I'll often say to my clients. You don't have to want to do this today. But if you want that long-term goal to be met, you're just going to have to do it today. So discipline, accountability, these are things that are, are very much central to reaching any goal and things that I really strongly emphasize. And when we say, like Mike Tyson, you have to do it like you love it, what he's talking about is a level of engagement, not necessarily a level of enjoyment, I would imagine. So he's showing up every day as if he loves it, it doesn't mean that he loves the day in day out either. And I suspect what he's what he's saying, like you said, is I have no motivation whatsoever to do this yeah. thing today. But I'm going to work all day long and do and, and kill myself at this in service. It's a, is it about delayed gratification in service of the ultimate goal? Is that part of what's going on there? One hundred percent. You hit the nail on the head, and that's the big difficulty with any goal that we often set up these long term goals but it requires short-term sacrifice to get there. And we're not wired in a way that orients us towards the long-term gratification. It's easier to eat the donut today rather than have the beach bod next year. It's easier to sit watching Netflix rather than going for the run in the depths of winter. Mm. And that's why there's so much emphasis now on like people will be familiar with the concept of grit and perseverance and, and tenacity and willpower, these are buzzwords because these are often the missing ingredients in getting what you want. And willpower, whatever you want to call it, because it is so much easier to, to prioritize short-term gratification. But if you want to achieve anything, you're going to have to make those short-term sacrifices. So it's the ability. There's a few ways I attack it. There's the ability to stay connected to the long-term motivator whatever that is um, and that's all about making sure it's clearly specified and we understand how to frame it and we understand how to keep it in our conscious awareness whatever little trick we need to do for that but then another thing is i think and i think maybe people don't maybe aren't aware of this so much we talk about short-term sacrifice there's no reason not to have some minor reinforcement along the way. One of the things that I often do when we're trying to strategize a long-term plan towards a long-term goal is to try to schedule in little bursts of reinforcement that will maintain your commitment and engagement. You're gonna, you're gonna hack your motivation in that way because if you keep on showing up for the slog and you're not getting any sort of gratification, no pat on the back, no reward, it's gonna become more of a slog. And there's going to be more mornings you wake up with that you don't want to do it. So one of the key things we're doing now with this kind of physical wellness stuff is trying to figure out how to schedule in those, I suppose people call them cheat days, cheat meals, whatever it is that keeps somebody going. 
Mm. Um, whatever little reinforcer can sustain their effort. I think we always need to keep sight um, of that. And maybe people go too far in the other end of the spectrum with sacrifice, but they don't sustain themselves. They don't give themselves the fuel to keep showing up. What I wonder about is the uncertainty of the achievement of the goal. Yeah. Right. So when Mike Tyson uh, or even somebody when they're, they're starting a podcast, um, they don't know when they're busting their gut 10, 12 hours a day, if it's ever going to be successful. There's, a, there's an element of risk in there. Right. Yeah. Um, what, what, what's your, like, what, what's your perspective on anybody that's going to do anything, whether it's start a business, start a podcast, start a sport and aim for the top. They have no idea of whether they're going to make it or not. And that's what breaks most people. Yeah. It's the uncertainty. So some yeah. people can work their ass off for two months, three months, six months, but can you do it without, without any positive reinforcement, but can you do it for 10 years? You know? Uh, Unlikely is what mm. I would say if you have zero positive reinforcement. And mm. and what I would kind of say that is even the way that the kind of question was phrased, it's something that we do all the time. When we're talking about a grand new endeavor, when we're talking about what we're trying to do, our goals tend to be results-based, outcome-based. Um, and exactly as you said, unfortunately, the outcome of our efforts aren't always within our control. And for that reason, yeah, you could bust a gut for 10 years and be unsuccessful in whatever mm. way you measure mm. success. Mm. And one of the things that I always try to do, and it's it's easy for some people and not for others, is to help them kind of find the glory in the effort. Mm. You know, we hear these like buzz, like love the grind, all of these sorts of things. Mm. But like, I think we have to help people find the gratification in going out on a limb and putting in the energy, putting in the effort, pushing themselves rather than having their reinforcement, their award, their success wrapped up in some sort of more, I suppose, objective demarcation of success. So mm. I will only be happy with my effort if I have 100,000 listeners to my podcast. You know, if, if that's the way that you're going to phrase your goal, I'm not going to say you're doomed to fail. But there's a lot of outcomes whereby you're not going to reach that. And you're kind of undermining the value of all the hard work. Mm. You know, th th there's something beautiful mm. in, in pushing yourself and working that hard. And you should seek the gratification in that and find the pride in that rather than having everything wrapped up in that performance oriented goal or outcome success measurement mm. of goals. Mm. That's very interesting. Um, okay. Um what, what what's your perspective? We touched on it briefly there, but I just want to wrap it up again um, and talk about it. Why, why do athletes quit? Why do high performers quit? Oh, that's a that's a big question. Um, a lot of different reasons. Um, I suppose uh, a lot of the stuff that we just mentioned there a second ago definitely factors in that mm. they set these lofty standards for themselves, wrapped up very clearly in results based goals mm -hmm. when they fail to reach that then that's the evidence that they need to call themselves a failure and disengage that yeah. could definitely be one and um, to to kind of um to use a sweeping statement if the reinforcement isn't there in whatever form that needs to be people are going to stop showing up they're going to stop engaging so that'll look different for various individuals it could be failure to reach a particular goal and it could be failure to connect to why they actually engaged with the, the sport or the activity to begin with. It could be a lot of other factors. Sometimes people disengage from their goals, their sport, whatever it is, 
because they were actually engaged in it for the wrong reasons to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. Some people only engage in the activity to prove something to somebody else or to make somebody else proud or to avoid shame or guilt. Mm-hmm. And disengaging from sport in that perspective can often be a good thing. And um, there's a lot of different reasons. Other things, burnout. We see burnout in sports people that they just keep pushing themselves to the limit, limit, limit. And they don't replenish. They don't rejuvenate. They don't reflect. And there's only so long you can be in high gear for before you burn out your engine, I suppose. So a lot of different reasons. Um, and those reasons can be idiosyncratic too. They can be very, very personal. It's good to, it's under- good to understand potentially why uh, when you embark upon any endeavor, why you might quit. So if you're starting a business, you're starting a podcast, whatever, just to have those things in mind. Okay, what is self-efficacy? And to put it simply, self-efficacy really refers to self-belief, confidence in your ability. You know, the kind of the academic definition would be um, the belief you have in your capabilities of overcoming obstacles, reaching goals, or performing to a high standard. And self-efficacy comes in two major forms, action self-efficacy and coping self-efficacy. Action self-efficacy refers to your confidence or belief in your ability, in your skill, your expertise, what you know, what you can do. Coping self-efficacy refers to the confidence you have in your ability to deal with unforeseen circumstances, roadblocks, adverse conditions essentially. And and across domains, whether it's looking at student outcomes, sporting outcomes, corporate outcomes, whatever it is, we'll tend to see self-efficacy is often a very central ingredient to success. Do you think it's immutable and innate or can we develop it? 100% develop it. And I've seen people develop it. And Albert Bandura, people might be familiar with that term is one of the people who really wrote about self-efficacy and, and, and coined the term. And he basically proposed, well, there's four ways to boost self-efficacy. And some of these I have found and the research I found to be a little bit more effective or efficient means of boosting it, but they all have a positive impact. And one, probably the weakest impact will be verbal persuasion. So, you know, verbal encouragement, you can do it. Well done. Look at all these things that you're capable of. Look at what you've done before. That can be a minor ingredient, maybe in the short term. And another thing would be vicarious experiences. So Bandura was big into observational learning. That was one of his big contributions that we often learn how to behave by viewing other people engaging in a particular way and kind of evaluating whether they were successful, whether they failed. If we see people that are like us, if we have role models, if we have peers even that are able to reach that goal, to perform well, that often gives us a boost. So, you know, little kids seeing sports people coming from the same background as them, from similar kind of um, communities that they come from, that gives them a boost. Gives you the idea that, well, if he can do it, so can I. So vicarious experiences. And then two that I think are a little bit more central uh, would be one, regulation of emotional state. Um, we tend to see that our level of self-efficacy can fluctuate depending on our emotional state. So obviously, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling low, depressed, you probably have imposed a limit on your self-belief. Whereas if you're feeling happy and you're feeling uh, energetic and you're feeling confident, obviously that self-belief increases. And so the management of your physiological emotional state is quite useful um, for that, at least so it doesn't have a detrimental impact, if nothing else. And then the last one, the most powerful one, the one that I always try to work on is mastery experiences. 
So it sounds a bit ridiculous to say, but you're going to have more self-belief if you have more evidence that proves that you're capable of performing to a level, that you're capable of doing the thing, whatever that is. So one of the things that I always say to boost self-confidence would be self-efficacy would be if we have a goal in mind, if we have a standard of performance in mind, let's almost stack the cards in our own favor. And in the short term, let's try to set up a goal, a performance expectation that's a little bit beyond what we're at currently, but is readily achievable. So let's push the envelope 5% beyond what we've ever done. If you if you want to run a marathon and you've only run 5Ks, let's mm-hmm. try regularly running 6Ks. And what you're doing there is obviously it's a movement towards what you're trying to achieve. But at the same time, you're getting those little boosts of, oh, I got a little bit better. I'm pushing myself. My effort is being um, productive and fruitful so I can move forward. And you just kind of stack those breadcrumbs up to the ultimate goal, essentially. I wrote down the word breadcrumb just uh, before you said it. Oh, really? Um, I wasn't expecting to say breadcrumb. Um, There you go. We're great minds. Um, (laughs) Okay, so... uh, what I'm hearing is those little reinforcements in relation to mastery. So yeah. say, for example, somebody is starting a YouTube channel, somebody is starting a podcast, somebody is starting, uh, they want to do a marathon, they want to do the 2024 marathon. Mm. Start and do do 500 meters, yeah. right? And then do 1,500 meters. And yeah. take comfort and reassurance from each little, because it's evidence of mastery as you move yeah. along. Um Start at the base camp as opposed to thinking about Everest all the time because that's um, breaking into bite-sized chunks, right? It's as simple as that. And one of the key things as well is have very clear objective monitoring of those efforts and that progress. Mm -hmm. Because what you're essentially trying to do is you're trying to build up a case, an argument against you doubting yourself. So if you keep a little diary, say marathon train, if you keep a little diary or you have one of those running apps on your phone. Yeah. And if you're kind of thinking, I'm not making progress, you have yeah. clear black and white evidence right there in front of you. You're arguing against yourself in a way. Right. So journaling, right? When you embark on this business, this podcast, this, 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 you just start with a journal, write down day by day and make notes of every time you achieve a little bit of success. And anytime you have some self-doubt, or you're feeling blue or feeling down, you consult that journal and you look at those dates. 100%. Or even one of the, the strategies I use, it's really simple, but it works really well. One, building self-belief and two, fostering accountability, which are obviously two central kind of concepts when it comes to goal orientation. It's called the Seinfeld strategy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I've heard of, Seinfeld, heard of Seinfeld, but I didn't know he had a strategy. He has a strategy um, and it obviously worked because I don't know if you've seen his garage and it was, he was successful. And, but basically he was asked, like, explain your success. Like, how are you capable of of doing what you did? And he said, basically consistency um, and sticking at it. And they said, well, how were you consistent? And he said, well, the issue that I ran into, and a lot of, I suppose, writers just generally speak would run into this is, there comes days where you sit down at the desk and you you bang your head against the computer screen and nothing good comes out. You put in hours and hours and hours and he doesn't get a joke or he doesn't write a scene or whatever it is. We don't make a breakthrough, speaking more broadly. And he said, that was really discouraging. You know, I was doing that day in, day out, but I knew that I had to keep on showing up in order to succeed because I might get nothing four days of the week, but Friday morning, that might be when the gold 
comes out. And we see a lot of Hemingway wrote a similar way, write for 12 hours and then in the 13th hour, something might come up. Mm. So he said, I needed to feed that consistency. So he said, this is the Seinfeld strategy. He probably didn't call it this, but it's been known as that since. He said, get a massive wall planner, huge wall planner. It has to be super duper visible. And he says, plant it somewhere that you cannot avoid it. Okay, wherever that might be on the fridge, whatever it is, somewhere you're going to see it every single day. Mm-hmm. On the top of that page, set your goals for maybe the next week. I've kind of modified it a little bit. I say set micro goals, those 5% extra goals, whatever they are, and set those goals for the next two weeks and, and identify what you need to do each day to move towards that. So that could be I'm going to sit down, I'm going to write for two hours. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to spend this much time, you know, engaged in this aspect of my business, whatever it is. I'm going to run this distance. And he said, every single day you reach those goals, you fulfill those tasks, you give a massive big tick for that day. Okay. And it sounds like kids stuff, but he said, eventually what you tend to see is you build up a streak. And by building up a streak, what you're doing is not only are you demonstrating your progress, but as well as that, you're almost leveraging those previous days of effort against the lack of motivation to engage in it the next day so it's almost like you're bringing those two weeks of effort to bear on the next day so if you wake up that morning and you go i'm not feeling it today you almost have that long-term pressure of well i've done it every day for two weeks i need to keep on showing up because i can't break the streak and i've had high level athletes do this for months on end and they might miss two days in six months and they'll say to me, Dylan, that one X that when I didn't do my stuff that day, it screams at me. And the next day that they wake up and don't want to do their stuff, they'll see that X and go, oh, I, I can't let that happen because I can't avoid it. So you're kind of offsetting. Like the, the issue with the long term goal is it's so far away and you have to engage in efforts in the short term to get there. So short term gratification beats long term gratification an awful lot. But by fostering cultivating an awareness of all of that effort that track record that's behind you you're almost fighting fire with fire in a way you're offsetting the the long-term gratification by staying engaged with that long-term track record behind you to keep moving forward if that makes sense it does yeah it does absolutely um okay so tell me talk to me about um reinforcement sensitivity how people respond to rewards versus punishment. Yeah, so basically we see it's a spectrum, but typically we can organize people into two camps um, and their membership intensity might vary. But what we tend to see is that some people are very much pleasure focused, reward focused. So they're very sensitive to reinforcement. Whereas on the other hand, we can have people that are punishment averse, pain averse, failure averse, whatever you want to call it. And for those people, they tend to be punishment sensitive. Mm. Um, And this seems to be very important because it factors into a lot of our thinking, a lot of our decision making. We will see certain habits emerge from people that are highly punishment averse. They want to minimize bad things happening. So that might lead to more conservative behaviors. Like we spoke about risk earlier. Mm -hmm. If you experience punishment more intensely than you do uh, reinforcement reward, you're going to minimize punishment that's going to feed into behavioral styles. Mm. Whereas if you're super reinforcement sensitivity, you sensitive, sorry, you don't really worry about failure. You don't really worry about loss. You see the shiny bright object and you go after it. You're a go-getter 
in that way. So it's really important to identify where people land on that spectrum, because if I'm trying to communicate a goal to them, if I'm trying to help them stay connected to a goal, it's important that I take into consideration which end of that spectrum they're at. And um, if somebody is only interested in bright, shiny objects, there's no point talking about, well, this effort will help you avoid this bad thing happening. It's not just not going to land with them. And um, so I, I try to calibrate the frame of the goal to where they land on that spectrum. OK, so I was thinking about that in terms of uh, management of teams in the corporate space as well, going back to the corporate space, yeah. particularly in the sales arena. Um, huh. It would be a good idea for management to to be able to delineate between those two types of personality yeah. on your team um and not use a one a blank one blanket fits all type uh, management um style for everybody and um, sales yeah. teams will have eight to ten people on them yeah um, and if there was a test that you could do and you would know which which is which it, that would be very helpful um, uh, well, there 100% is. So the, the assessment that we currently use will find where you land on that with a, a pretty good degree of accuracy. Obviously, you can follow up on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're looking at a sales team, if you were to look at the makeup of a sales team, mm. people that stay in that business long term are going to be far more likely to be reward sensitive because they're looking for the bonus. That, mm. That's what they're looking for. That's the real draw of working in sales for a lot of people. So the people that maintain those efforts long term they're the ones probably that are just seeking out and are motivated by reward rather than punishment averse, particularly if, you know, commission is a big part of your salary. If you're punishment averse, that's probably not going to suit you all that well. Mm, interesting. So if you were looking to motivate and drive sales teams, rewards, I mean, it sounds so obvious, but yeah. uh, the greater the reward, the, the greater the, the, the likelihood of um, increased performance elevated performance uh, broadly speaking yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot more detail you can go into in terms of like depending on what the thresholds are in terms of sales targets you know people tend not to like if they have to reach 100 of a target to get their commission or their bonus or whatever Very it good. is yeah you know generally speaking if it's a 90 percent or 85 percent, and even if it's a kind of um a reduced bonus for reaching that threshold mm. people tend to prefer that because Again, if you're only interested in the bright, shiny object mm. and you're coming towards the end of the quarter or the end of the month, whatever way the, the system works, mm. and you're at 50% mm. and you're saying to yourself, well, there isn't a hope of me making up that other 50% to get my bonus, you're mm. demotivated, you're discouraged and mm. um, because you're not going to get that carrot at the end. So even in understanding, it's not quite as simple. The basic premise is give them reward, but it's also to make sure that you can maintain efforts, even if the 100% quota can't be reached. So sometimes mm -hmm. having those kind of that stratified, I suppose, um, bonus structure can be really helpful for that. Yeah, some some and have a gateway that's gateway quite, low quite low into, um, yeah. into it. So maybe it's 40, 50% of quarterly target and now they're earning money commission and then you stagger it up and up and up and up and then you really accelerate it once they go past mm -hmm. 100 to to drive um over performance okay fantastic yeah. um self-control and um, we've touched on it again but but impulsivity self-control and impulsivity um what's the relationship there um do you find impulsive people in terms of high performance they can get distracted easily would, would impulsivity be something you're looking at on favorably in terms of personality profiles? 
Uh, generally not. Like if you look at what impulsivity does for you, mm. essentially impulsivity does is it helps you discard a long-term strategy. That, that's what impulsivity does, that you have a particular course or plan of action and it's impulsivity is demonstrated when there's a, a deviation from that. You do the thing that wasn't being planned. You, you mm. move in a new direction all of a sudden in the short term. Mm. So having really high levels of impulsivity, that's something that probably needs to be controlled if you're trying to stick to a plan of action. Mm. And self-control factors in from the perspective of, it, it's not necessarily the case that if you're impulsive, you lack self-control, but um, fostering self-control can be a means of reducing impulsive acts and impulsive behavior. It can put a barrier, shackles on impulsivity, if that's a, a personality trait that you have. And... Um, and self-control is important for a bunch of different reasons. We, we talk about self-control, two different uh, categories, inhibitory and initiatory. And some people are really high on one and not so much on the other. Inhibitory self-control is your ability to restrain yourself from doing the bad thing, the wrong thing, whatever that is. Initiatory self-control is your ability to get going, to get stuck in, to do the right Pardon thing. Me. So it's to initiate. It's initiate exactly initiatory, yeah. So to get going, to get up out of bed, to start working towards that goal, and impulsivity probably factors more into inhibitory self control because if we're talking about physical health, and you know, if you have really low levels of inhibitory self control and you have high levels of impulsivity, you see the donut and you eat it, even if that yeah. wasn't the plan, you know. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Um, in the research that you were that we looked at you sent me some stuff to have a look at earlier um emotional eating was came up as something that was highly correlated with loneliness mm. right and um, which i thought was very interesting and in terms of athletes uh, that ability that emotional eating thing was concerning um and you mentioned the donut there what what what, what extra what, what what's your perspective on emotional eating um, well, generally speaking, when we look at emotional eating, again, I suppose it's quite similar to the point we made on impulsivity. Mm. Emotional anything, emotional behavior, broadly speaking, whatever mm. we're talking about, can often manifest itself as, again, a deviation from what you actually want to do or what you're capable of doing or what you planned to do. Mm. When we talk about emotional eating, what we're talking about is people maybe not thinking so rationally, people not behaving in a measured way. And, you know, People differ, again, in terms of what emotional triggers there may be, what emotional states may, may trigger, you know, unhealthy eating, if that's if that's the specific context we're looking at. And but generally speaking, we're just talking about intensity of negative emotion is problematic um, in, in writ large in terms of your ability to stick to what it is that you want to do. You know, emotion can be a spanner in the works, essentially. And, and loneliness is one that we often see. Um, and broadly speaking, if you wanted to depress somebody, if you wanted negative psychological outcomes for somebody, you socially isolate them. You know, we, we're herd animals, we're social creatures. It's very primates, central to yeah. us. We're primates. It's very central to our evolution. We all went off a lot to our desire for social belonging. So when somebody becomes isolated from that, they don't feel social support. And the key thing is it's the perception of social support or social connection. Mm. And if that's not there, we can see that they may seek gratification elsewhere. And maybe that comes in the form of food. 
That's really interesting, um, from both from a personal point of view in the context of COVID and post-COVID, but yeah. also there's, there are lessons there for management, for corporations, mm-hmm. um, in terms of including people, in terms of group get-togethers, in terms of fostering that culture um, of, of, um, of sharing experiences, right? And if, you, if we're looking at even things like burnout, if we're looking at levels of engagement, group cohesiveness really factors into that. And then perceptions of um, group membership. If, if people feel a central part of a team, mm. that protects them against so many of the negative outcomes of, you know, isolation. heavy work, well, yeah. yeah, isolation, heavy workloads, pressure, any of that sort of stuff. There's so many different areas that social belonging and social support act as a buffer from the, the negative influences that our environments can have on us and um, particularly again burnout if we're looking at a corporate perspective you know burnout and disengagement if people feel that they're being listened to if people feel that they're cared about and that they're part of a team we can stave off a lot of those detrimental effects very interesting um okay so what does the future hold um are you working on are you working on a new project yeah, so a few irons in the fire at the minute. So my research and academic work is still ongoing in the area of high performance. Hopefully we have a few papers coming out soon. I have a good one looking at cold water immersion and how that factors into resilience and mental toughness and a lot of things we spoke about today. Some other academic stuff in the area of intelligence. And as well as that, I'm involved in a startup and that looks at physical wellness. It's called Vi Nutrition. And basically what we are doing is we're offering both individual and corporate packages um, that will help people reach their physical wellness goals in a psychologically informed way. That's what we're trying to do. So the team have an awful lot of experience in the areas of exercise and nutrition, both personally and professionally. And what the team have identified is that a lot of the time we have a one size fits all approach to planning nutrition planning exercise whatever it is and it maybe doesn't take into consideration the important psychological factors that could be the difference between success and failure and that's really why i got involved that i suppose they saw some of the work that i was involved in in terms of helping people reach their performance goals and they really just asked me could we adapt this approach to try to remove the barriers and to add the resources needed for people to reach more health focused goals so a lot of my time at the minute, we're, we're kind of getting stuck into that. And, and the early work has been really encouraging. There seems to be a lot of interest. So, yeah, that, that's where we're going with a fine nutrition. Um, and then we're saying that from, from a company perspective, from a corporation perspective, engaging with Vine Nutrition or, or others in the space, for example, could have massive not only health benefits, but we're talking about ultimately revenue and business benefits as well. Uh, 100%. And, and the more I look into the research, the more I realize that there's certain pillars of well-being mm. that are basically non-negotiable if you want to optimize people's performance. You know, if you want people to perform at their, their highest, highest level to maximize revenue, to maximize impact, progress, whatever you're trying to do at a corporate level, mm. what we need to see is certain boxes need to be ticked. And a lot of those are health focused. You know, we have to look at sleep. We have to look at nutrition. We have to look at exercise. We have to look at social connection too. If we're lacking, if an individual is lacking on any of those fronts, it's going to show up. It's going to put a limit on how hard they can work, how productive they can be. 
But if we manage to satisfy those needs, it gives them a platform to push their limits and go beyond what they've done before. From a personal perspective, that's beneficial. From an organizational perspective, that's obviously beneficial too. So it's, it's a win-win, I suppose. And in terms of measuring outcomes, are you working mm -hmm. on a strategy there to measure, say you you, you do an input, you get it, then how would you measure the outcomes? What kind of um, measurement strategies are you working on? So we're we're looking at it again from a very personal level, from a health-based level, and then from a, a performance level. And obviously everything I do is always going to be empirically tested. You know, I put a lot of emphasis on statistical analysis. So in terms of the stuff I'm specifically looking at, my psychological lane, there's going to be assessments at the start and there's going to be assessments at the end to make sure that my work is having the, the impact it needs to have on a lot of the things we discuss, self-control and self-efficacy, motivation, discipline, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Then we have nutritionists and we have nutritionists on the team that will also have a look at, okay, let's look at food intake. Let's look at physical well-being, physical health markers. And then in the corporate space, we're always going to have a look at, okay, look, what's the team's goal here? What are we trying to get? What do these people want to achieve? And we'll always try to measure everything we can to see that we're objectively having the impact that we, we think we can have. Fantastic. Sounds really interesting. Okay, Dr. Dylan Colbert, thank you so much. That was Perfect. very fascinating, very interesting, and um, good luck. Where can people find you? LinkedIn, Instagram, are you on Facebook? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. Best place to get more information on my work personally would be drdylancolbert.com. Dr. Dylan Colbert. Dr. Dylan Colmer, thank you so much. Thank you. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Connor.